so those, those of you who know me know that this is n now the favorite part of the evening. <laughs> <laughs> so I really welcome any comments. For those of you that need to leave, of course, you must absolutely do so. But for those of you who need to say something, if there's any discussion that needs to happen, if you'd like to, to stretch for a moment, please do. But I'll be here for a while. Yes. Okay, bye love. She's my editor. It's my experience that, you know, it's like every time we surrender to even the tiniest thing, we're practicing, you know, and that I think we don't have to concern ourselves with the big things. I think that they almost happen as a part of the unfolding. Just our willingness to be present as much as we can day to day is our gesture of love and our, and our, our gesture that we're seriously concerned with living our life as authentically and truthfully as possible. And that when the big bumps come, we are served by the little letting goes that we've done before, you know. And I guess the key is as much as, as the phrase, as much as you can, because it doesn't, it's not like I let go, you know, like mm. that, but I try, you know, the best that I could. Yeah. I was wondering, um, I, I love what you were saying about the preciousness of life. I think that's a wonderful teaching. I was wondering how that interfaces with any kind of belief in reincarnation. Because I feel sometimes, you know, oh, you know, say around the issue of whether or not to have children. You know, it's something that I haven't felt moved to do yet in my life, and yet I'm coming up to the age where I've got to make a decision pretty soon, you know. And, uh, Sometimes I say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. I can always do that next life. You know, I don't have to have every, <laughs> I don't have, I have to have every experience in this life, you know. And yet somehow that takes away from the preciousness of, of this life, you know. Hmm. Of saying, you know, you have to do what you have to do in this life, you know. And I wonder if you've had anything to say about that. <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know, I think that, that if you're willing if we are able and willing to enter fully into life moment to moment, 
then our concern about the next life and that becomes sort of irrelevant because that's just, I mean, it's not only way out of the moment, it's way out of the lifetime. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that what we're doing in this moment is going to inform whatever it is that's going to happen in the future, both in the rest of whatever life we've got left and whatever it is that comes after. I mean, I, you know, people ask me, do you believe in another life and reincarnation and all of that? And I don't know. I mean, my intuition tells me that I think there is something, you know, that the, the cycles are just so insistent in nature that, it, you know, intuitively or instinctually, I err I towards thinking there is something, but I don't know. But w- what I do know or believe is that whatever I do now, if I do it wholeheartedly and lovingly, without harm to either myself or someone else, what's coming will be better for that. So really the important thing is what I'm doing now. It does seem, a belief in reincarnation does seem to open up some space around what you're doing. Well, you know, I mean, you you never know what you're going to come back as next time. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'll tell you a story, it's like, it's it's very, I'll abbreviate it, but a friend of mine was a nun in Thailand, and there was this absolutely impossibly arrogant monk there. And he was like the, the perfect monk with a perfect posture, and he could sit for hours and, you know, all of that stuff. And of course, he irritated everybody. <laughs> and, so, and so, one day he went down to the village to see a seer, somebody who could see future lifetimes. And he came back, and he was like radiant, and he was more arrogant than ever. <laughs> and of course, somebody asked him, what happened? And this guy said, well, in my past life, I was told that I was this magnificent black stallion. Now I'm a Buddhist monk. It's like the sky's the limit. I'm like on the up and up, you know? So people say, well, why don't you go and find out what you're going to be in your next life? <laughs> and so he said, no, you know, but eventually he went and he came back and he disappeared for days. Nobody saw him. And eventually they got out what happened and this guy said to him, you could be a tapeworm. <laughs> so it's like, you know, we've got to do what we could do now because, <laughs> we, you know, it's like, there might be reincarnation, but you're not necessarily going to be reincarnated as, you know, a white woman in North America, you know, you know. Thank I'm you. not someone who's had an immediate like, um, a diagnosis that I'm going to die in a year or so. And I just feel like what you're saying is so true, but yet, because um, I'm not faced with an immediate fact that I feel like I'm still sleeping, I don't feel like I'm really awake to the fact that death is so immediate and it's part of life. And it's not a very passive attitude. That I'm flipping into the fact that, okay, well, um, with being passive, being not active, and um, thinking that, well, after all, everything is illusion, so why, what what do you care? Why do you care? And it's so easy to slip into self-pity and and, and non-action. I mean, it's such a fine line, it's hard to, so what would you say to all these like 
Well, you know, I'm, like, there's, <coughs> there's one question I always ask myself or I challenge myself with in terms of the teaching that I'm doing. And that is, you know, I feel, I say, can I, in, in my teaching, impart the passion and zeal and the sense of urgency that I feel in my life now? Because I believe that that is the greatest gift I can offer the world. It's almost, can the urgency be infectious so that people can, in the fullness and health of their lives, grapple with the fragility of life? I mean, I would like nothing more than to be able to live a long, full life with the understanding I have now. But I also know that if I continue to live my life as I was before the diagnosis, the chances are, even if I'd lived till 90, I might not ever have reached this point. So it's really ironic. The best deal is going to be if they find a cure for the virus. <laughs> <laughs> then, you know, I'll be the first in line for, for, for the injection, and then I'll be able to put my feet up and relax for the next 40 years, <laughs> while the rest of you are all going to have all your homework to do. <laughs> that's, like, that's my dream. <laughs> but, you know, it's just like, you know, I feel, the reason why I spoke so much about how our society avoids and denies death is because there are so many simple little things, and that's what I've tried to do in this talk, that we can actually do to get closer to the fact that we are going to die. We can do hospice work. We can go to a department of anatomy and see dead bodies. We can jolt ourselves. We can reflect on the fact that you know, we truly, it's so arrogant to think that we are going to definitely wake up in the morning. I mean, there's a Zen master that says that humanity is so arrogant that they believe that there will be an in-breath after the out-breath, you know. So it's just like, it's like, it's possible because, I mean, you know, there are, there are people who have the, the deepest understanding who are not in the situation that I'm in, dealing with a life-threatening illness, you know, so it is possible. But I think we have to really challenge ourselves. And we have to be willing to step out of the comfort zone that our society has created for us. And that's hard. That means coming face to face with some truths that we're not comfortable with and which fly in the face of so much of what our world is all about. And yet we have to do it because I think until we touch that fragility, we are precluded by the distance to go, we are precluded from fullness of life. We cannot live life fully until we've died to the illusion that we're going to live forever. And so it's a difficult journey, but the rewards are beyond anything certainly I've ever experienced. So why don't we do it? For the reasons you mentioned. And it seems like such a shame. You, you spoke at the beginning about the challenge of um, accepting the chaos around us and finding a way to maybe achieve a, an inner peace. But I wonder about a relationship with the chaos, like you were talking about, your relationship with, with your, your illness. Can one establish a similar relationship and not necessarily befriend it, but... but find a way of maybe, uh, well, as, as you're doing, of course, e expressing 
your experience and, and helping us understand what that's like, but also maybe reducing the chaos. I mean, is, is it a given or is there a way to interact with it uh, more successfully maybe? Well, you know, it's my experience that, that the degree to which I'm able to accept the chaos in myself and befriend it, because, you know, chaos and confusion is a very common state of mind for most people in the world. And so it's like, do I hate the chaos or do I befriend it? Because I think until we can befriend it, which doesn't mean cultivate it, but means not be freaked out and react to it, just like, oh, this is chaos meditation. And just, <laughs> you know, and it's like, okay, well, here it is again, and know it. When we begin to accept those parts of ourselves, I think at the same time, we are then flirting with the possibility of accepting it in the world too, at large, around us. Because if we're intolerant of things in ourselves, like if we hate ourselves, which is the case with a lot of people, there's a lot of inner conflict. I believe that it's really impossible to love another person wholeheartedly until there's really some sense of inner affection and care for oneself. And so too with chaos. You know, I think that chaos is a state of mind. It's one of the three spokes of the wheel that the Buddha spoke of that creates suffering. It's confusion, you know. And in, in, you know, in order to, to deal with it, we first have to acknowledge that it's there, then we have to accept it, and then, we can, and then it becomes workable. And it does lessen in ourselves. And it lessens when our reactivity falls. And so w when there's chaos in the world, we don't feel so reactive to it either. It doesn't mean to say that we're paralyzed. We can actually respond better if we don't react, and more appropriately. But how about the challenge of not just making a peace with the chaos, but, but also attempting to sort of push it back a little? I mean, for, for the sake of the world as a whole, it would seem that to the degree to which we have a, a clear path through it, and, and more of us can understand that path, the better off we are in some sense. It's just like some of your images, I just want to reflect back to you. It's like, push it back a little. To me, you know, there's like a version there. It's like, you know, and my experience is that when, whenever you try and push something away, it actually gets worse. You know, that's my, you know, that's my experience. And so that's the one thing. And the other is you spoke of finding a, a way through it, which, which says to me that there is something inherently wrong with it which I also question because I think that, you know, at the beginning I spoke about opening to all the loveliness that we find in ourselves, but we also have to open up to the other forces which we don't appreciate so much. But it's opening up to the whole spectrum that really I feel brings us to a place of great possibility in terms of freedom. And so, you know, it's like even our images can be very revealing. We have to accept the chaos. If, if when you sit and close your eyes, you find chaos, that is your dharma. And, you know, it sounds sort of a little bit sort of simple and maybe a bit, you know, sort of zen-like or something. And, and, you know, and excuse me, don't tell George, I said that. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not trying to make light of it. I mean, it's actually a really serious thing because we have these ideas that being angry is not spiritual 
and being loving is spiritual and being guilty is not spiritual and, and forgiving is and chaos is definitely not spiritual but contentment and sub the, the sublime states are much more desirable but actually I feel that the real maturing happens is when there's contentment and balance with everything which doesn't mean that we cultivate the negative states but we don't react to them we just say oh fear oh love oh chaos and it's like so we move we see everything changing and when we hold things lightly they change more quickly if we gridlock around chaos it, you can be sure that we're going to keep it in place longer than it would have been before I, f I feel like that's the essence yeah yeah um, I don't know well, it's hard for me to Can you name anybody who's been able to conquer it? Well, I can answer that. You, you don't. <laughs> I mean, you know, there, there is no way, you know, I mean, the medical establishment has tried and they haven't succeeded. And my experience is that if there's any aspect of my experience that I fight with, that creates tightness and closure and gridlock in my mind and in my body. And when I say accept it, I don't mean that I say thank you virus for coming into my life. I'm so grateful. You are the dearest, sweetest thing for blessing me with your presence. That's not what I mean. What I'm saying is there's nothing that I can do about it. It's in my bloodstream. So I have a choice. I can either make war with what is a given or I can say, okay, Sipo, you live, I live. You die, I die. We have to get on here. And for us to get on, I have to have a relationship with this aspect of life. And my sense is that if I don't fight it, if I don't gridlock around it, if I don't marginalize it, if I don't push it away or deny it, if I don't try to conquer it, you know, it's like just feel the energy of trying to conquer something that is not going to be conquered. It's a part of my bloodstream. It's, 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 so if I'm fighting w with something that just can't be fought, I mean, I'm just going to be a war zone and I'm, I'm sure that I'll be dead, you know, it, at some point. This virus is really tricky, man. And, um, and it's really difficult. I mean, imagine befriending something that has killed over 50 of your friends, your beloved friends. Yeah, well, Oh, I get pissed off. I get angry. I'm not saying I don't get angry and I don't get scared. I, you know, I hope I haven't given that impression. But what I'm saying is that I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go to war with what is a given in my life. It's the same as I'm not gonna go to war against anger in my mind. So I'm not ashamed of the fact that there are times when there's raging anger there, and I and I try to deal with that as best I can, and fear and grief. And there are times when I hate this virus, you know, and the anger just pours through me. But I know that the direction of freedom 
on any level of life, forgetting about the virus, is finding a way of making every situation workable. And for me, making life workable with this virus has to do with befriending it and accepting that for the moment, it's a part of my life. If they find a vaccine or a cure or something, I'll be the first in line. Like I gave a talk here a couple of years ago and somebody said, oh, gee, you know, you're so transformed by this experience and it's just been such an incredible thing and all these incredible blessings. If they found a cure, would you accept it? And I said, if there was a cure in the back of this room, I'd knock everybody over to get that, you know. So it's like I'm not in some, you know, cloud cuckoo land about this. But truly, to the extent that I fight with this is the extent to which I'm in trouble. Much gentler, but much fuller. I mean, I, th I truly feel like some people, you know, sometimes when I go up to someone and they've heard, you know, like now with my book coming out, you know, it's like there's a label that goes before me. And <laughs> some people like see me and you can see that they see me with one leg in my grave or maybe both, you know. And the fact is that I feel more alive than most people I hang out with these days. I mean, it's so ironic, but it's really true. And I'm sure that I will die with less regrets than a lot of people who get to live 40 or 50 years longer than me. And I, I'm not trying to say that I'm ready to die. I don't want to die. I'm living too well now. I mean, it's hard. I'm not trying to give you the impression that life isn't hard. It's really challenging. But I'm more alive. And I don't want to die. But I think that if I had to die, it would be easier now than it would have been if I hadn't gone through this experience. And part of it was the fire of coming to accept that I, like all of nature and like each one of you, can die in any moment. And that I've had a tap on my shoulder which other people haven't felt yet. But there is a tap going on for each of us, you know. You know, I think, I mean, it's kind of the same issue as what he was talking about. I think that if there are aspects of ourselves that we want to conquer or we want to change or we just don't want and we're pushing it away, in a way I think we're kind of freezing the situation. You know, it can't move. But, you know, it's like when I, you know, there were times over the last five years when I'd be really sick, you know. Like I had a bout of shingles, which was awful. It was the most painful thing I've ever experienced. And eventually, all I could do was lie in bed with my teddy bear 
and just say, I love you. That was all. There was too much pain. There was too much confusion. I was quite sure I was about to die. And I just lay there saying, I love you. I love you. I care about this pain. And it made a very big difference, you know, because we're so conditioned to not accept what is unpleasant. And so if anything unpleasant comes, our instinctual reaction is to push it away, to conquer it, to get rid of it. And yet, when we soften around it, then it can begin to move, you know? And you know, the important thing is, it's not, it's not a defeat to accept it. You know, some people think it's a defeat, that unless you're fighting, then you're defeated. If you're not fighting, you're defeated. But it's like, it's not a defeat. If you can enter into that breast with all the love in your heart and pour it through there in every way that you can, visually, energetically, with touch, and just like populate that part of your body with all the love that you can muster. I'm not saying it's, you could have a cure or a miracle, but what I'm saying is that you will create probably a climate in which if a miracle is possible, it will happen. But if you have, if you've thrown that part of your body outside of your orbit and of your affection, I think there's very little chance of the miracle happening. And that's why I said that I like think of miracles. I mean, if you look at the AIDS situation, there isn't much reason to think of miracles in the long term. But I still will think of miracles because I feel like I've also touched the fact that I'm going to die one day anyway. And therefore I can fly. But it's not like some people, you know, have affirmations like, I will live forever, you know. And then they go on with life, you know. So it's a... It's, it's a courageous journey. I think it's one of the most difficult journeys, is befriending the truth of life. Um, we addressed this question a little bit earlier, and I felt self-conscious asking it, but I want to ask it anyway. Um, it's a little bit of confusion for me about the relationship that you're talking about with life and death, and that is, if death is so accepted, so part of life, and something that we strive to accept, why should we also strive to live more years, even though in the moment life is wonderful, there's a lot of questions, so why does it matter whether it ends tomorrow or in four years? Well, you see, I think that when you talk about what does it matter if it ends tomorrow or 40 years, you're living out of the moment. I think that when you touch the fact that life is fragile, then what it does is it brings you into the moment in a way that was previously impossible because you really truly understand that the only true experience of life is momentary. And it's like what pulls us out is the delusion that we could live forever. You know, I'm planning this for next week and that for next year, which doesn't mean to say we don't make those plans. But when the experience of life dovetails and collapses just into this moment, then life becomes full, it becomes rich, and it is informed by the preciousness which must be an experience, 
when we know that we can die in any moment. And it just makes whether you live a year or 40 years an irrelevant question. It's like now. What is life like now for me, you know? And it's much easier because most of us in our lives, oh God, and next year I'm going to do this and then that and, you know, what happens if this and insurance policies and IRAs and retirement and all of that. And it's not that we don't concern ourselves with that, but when that becomes the obsession of life, the experience of the moment is so much less, you know? So, you know, I think we must value, and I mean, I certainly value life more than I've ever done before because I know it could be gone like that, you know? And it's that experience of living life fully in the moment that I think is the essence of, you know, the authentic spiritual path. And it's not a question of how long we're going to live, it is how am I living now? Now, now, now. And that's why I feel like this practice, I was so smart to start meditating (laughs) when I did, because, you know, I would hate to be diagnosed without this meditation practice, you know, it would have made no sense, you know. There are a few more questions that I think we need to end with that. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, if our obsession became with living life fully and authentically, rather than living it for a long time, you know, I could go with that. <laughs> but, but, um, you know, that's why I feel, I mean, it's so incredible to be here just with all of you and all the people that were here earlier. It's like, we all care. It's like, we're all questioning this incredible conspiracy of delusion that we've created in our world. I mean, how stupid that I should live till 39 before I see somebody dying. I mean, isn't that amazing? You know? And, you know, if I was to ask people to put up their hands, there are probably a lot of people here that have never seen a dead body or never been with somebody watching their last breath. And yet, it's the one truth that unites us all. It's the only common denominator for all of us. And it's a total secret. And most people in our world believe almost till the end that they're never going to die. And then it's like, oh God, why me? You know? <laughs> so, yeah. Does that answer your question? I mean, it's sort of like, you know. <laughs> Thank you. I, um, I'd like to share something. Thank you. Uh, a week and a half ago, uh, I was uh, present at the burial of a, a really close friend, dear friend. I live, I'm living at his apartment, just, just a couple of blocks from the street. And uh, my relation, our relationship. love and passion 
sort of allowed me to love myself a little more and to reciprocate, have it be mutual, love him, love others. Instead of a wonderful kind of um, nurturing, and uh, it certainly is still difficult for me letting go of him. But, you know, there people throw the word gift around a lot. Really, in my heart, in my mind, my soul, it's a real gift known this man and one of the gifts that I feel we gave each other is how we give giving and receiving are the same in some ways is that now when I go to bed at night I'm very conscious of the fact that I may not have that it's just a little gift. So I heard you say that Thank you. He, he was a very lucky guy to have a friend like you for however long you guys were together. And you know, I agree with you. This word gift is thrown around a lot, you know. I went to a workshop. It was a workshop for people with AIDS and their families and caregivers. And um, there was a woman there who you all know. I'm not going to mention her name. She's the sort of queen of death and dying. And, <laughs> and she said to the gathering of about 150, 200 people, this was five years ago, and you know, we know more now than we knew five years ago. And it was, it was. She said that her feeling was the reason why AIDS had come and affected the gay community was that we'd been gifted as a community with this disease, and that we were going to learn these lessons that we were then going to share with humanity. We'd been like the chosen ones to share these lessons. And th there was a riot. <laughs> we all got out our pink handkerchiefs. <laughs> and we got rid of her. <laughs> but it's true, you know. I always think that I can say where the gifts are and what the gifts have been for me. But nobody must tell me how lucky I am because nobody's in a position to say that. So I really respect what you said. Serious illnesses. I, it was so surprised 
because it was my father, and I went to visit him in the hospital, and he's lying there like a pink vegetable, and he can't talk to me, and he can't raise his hand. And now, when I visit him, I'm so surprised when I see what he can't do and what he used to be able to do, and I'm so sad and grieving, and it's just, it's just, um, and, but I'm getting used to it. And I, we had a family gathering, and I, I was talking to my cousin, and she said, what I would be afraid of would be if there was another stroke, because that happens to people in stroke. And I realized that I, I, I still thought about it in a, in a way that you haven't been thinking about it, like, oh, well, now I'm holding the line again, uh, but there's not going to be another stroke. It's, it's just very, very interesting, this whole process that I, it's very interesting. It's and it's humbling. Much, but, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I have, like, three good days, then I start, you know, thinking, oh, well, you know, it's like I can sort of let, you know, sort of let loose a little bit, you know, and, and stuff, and it's, you know, the old thoughts start coming back, you know. And I sometimes wonder, like, if there was a cure, you know, would there be the same urgency in my life? Would there be the same resolve? Would the passion be there? I don't know. I'd like to find out, you know. <laughs> but I don't know. There was one question, yeah. I really like what you said. No, I really love the community people and the rollerblades jumping into your feet. And um, I find your sense of humor really refreshing, too. And I was really glad that you talked about suicide because it was running through my head for some reason. I was hoping we could talk about it because I've never heard someone say so simply that it's a very personal choice that basically other people have the right to interfere with to judge. What it made me think of was maybe that what you meant was that almost if I have no right to help, that there's someone in my family who I feel responsible for who's been suicidally depressed for 20 years. And it seems like I spend so much of my time racking my brains trying to help this person who calls and says, What do I do with my life? And I don't know, I mean, it, even when you were reading the readings about death being behind you and tapping on the shoulder, for some reason it seems to me that that kind of depression. I'm thinking of it as not normal, cancer or HIV, well it's normal, it's organic, but I've got this thing in my head that depression is something else, and it just, I don't know if you had any thoughts about that, but I keep thinking that I can do something about somebody else's suicide, because it doesn't sound the way you describe it, like your friend who made a choice and had the flowers and the friends do, this feels like something that this person doesn't want to accept, but it's like a monster that's got its claws in you. I want to know if anybody has a response. Yeah, um, I would consider myself having been suicidal for 25 years. So I don't know what to do that. But I think that I probably have to break out of that process, and I'm not sure exactly how it happened. There was one moment, but, but I suddenly realized at one point that suicide was not the first option. The thing that struck me what most was an entire sense of separation from, from myself. Um, when I was a child, that was physical. I would lock myself up in a dance and physical. I would no one ever came to 
So what you're saying is that is that perhaps the way that you could be most present for this person as a pal, as a friend, is to let her or him know that you care, you know, that you really care. And probably for yourself, if it feels like it's very onerous at times, you need to be sure that as an expression of care for yourself, that you get a lot of support and help and that if necessary she gets some sort of professional support too because it seems like that would be an awful lot to carry on your own you know yes. <laughs> is there anybody with a, a sort of burning something george no nothing burning. no we'll say it <laughs> well um you're always very profound when you do say something george um, I have a friend whose best friend killed himself on Saturday, and um, what was particularly moving to me about it was that my friend came away, he has no practice, um, they know each other through drug addiction and through attempts to recover from drug addiction, and from depression. And with what was very moving about my friend's observation, he, he was there when his friend took his life with an overdose. I don't know, I don't understand the details, but um, the best that my friend was able to do was to try to administer CPR at the last moment. So I don't, maybe he wasn't there when the person took it, I'm not sure. But when he came, he came away from the experience feeling uh, a tremendous lightness 
that my interpretation is it seems to have had to do with the fact that he felt a deep compassion, a loving compassion towards his friend. Not sorry for his friend, but a deep compassion um, that seemed to be connected with their bond as friends that didn't judge his friend in this final moment of his life. His friend wasn't conscious enough to be able to take that in from the sounds of it, and yet my friend felt as if his friend understood perfectly, and as if he somehow communicated that. And um, in the experiences that I've had around similar situations, it seems to me that it's a fine line, a lot like uh, the fine lines that you've been talking about. Um, of being able to totally love somebody uh, with, a, with a real open-hearted compassion without judging them, even though you might disagree violently with what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like just being present with your friend even if you disagree with what's happening. Just like sh showing that you care. I think the evening is over. <laughs> Did you? Well, I just wanted to say another thing to you. I also have a friend who was suicidal and had made a couple of attempts at the end of the Actually, I'm going to ask you if you'll just continue this personally. I want to thank you all very much for sticking through. We've been here for quite a while. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.